Before today's episode, a special programming note. Our firm would like to remember and mourn the loss of Dennis Jacobson, our sound engineer and audio professional of many, many years. Dennis was the consummate professional. I had the pleasure of working with him for almost 20 years, and his loss struck us all very hard. He was a remarkable individual, born in California, raised in Fargo, North Dakota, who was a tremendous talent, a quiet intelligence, incredibly skilled, Emmy Award winner, and was always a terrific friend of the firm and always performed with incredible skill. And so we just want to remember him. He passed away suddenly and unexpectedly on April the 28th. And we just want to take a moment to remember Dennis, to extend our condolences to Dennis's family and friends. May his memory always be for a blessing. Welcome to The Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, politics, and demographics. Today's episode, Zeinsgeist, Washington's Man of the Moment. In every political era, there is one or more, but always a small group of individuals who embody the era, who embody the moment. If you think back to the 1980s, perhaps that man might have been Michael Deaver, who was the image maker for Ronald Reagan. But there have been several. With each decade, one or two or three of these individuals emerge. In our latest political risk brief, and for today's episode, we explore one of these figures of our own time, Jeffrey Dunstan Zeintz, the new, recently installed White House chief of staff. What makes Jeff Zeintz so remarkable is his embodiment of a particular moment in Washington, D.C. that combines a rare set of talents and credentials and insights as Washington has emerged from a government town to something much greater than a government town, and in fact, we would argue, is really dominant in American life. And Zeintz achieved his remarkable success, and he has been successful educationally, philanthropically, financially, and professionally by mastering the intersection of not only the public and private sectors, but the hybridization of those public and private sectors into something very new that represents a new feature, a novel feature of not only American political life, but American civilization more broadly. And by studying and understanding the story of Jeff Science, we can gain a great insight into contemporary Washington, D.C. and how it operates. I am joined, as always, by my colleagues, Johnny Fluger, our chief strategist. Great to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. And Jeremy Furchgott, director. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be here. So we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into the career and accomplishments of Jeff Zients, not only to understand the man, which is worth doing, given that he is White House chief of staff, but as I referenced earlier, to really understand the moment. And I'd like to turn to you, Johnny, for an exploration of Jeff Zients' early years and the foundation of his future success. I think it's noteworthy that Jeff Zients grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. There are relatively few figures of his prominence who have grown up in this area. Historically, perhaps the most famous native of Washington, D.C. who served in government was J. Edgar Hoover. There are certainly others, but there are not as many as you would expect given the emergence of Washington over the course of the 20th century. And he grew up in Kensington, a close-in suburb, and attended one of the famed independent schools of this area, St. Albans, which is also the school 
that at one time was well known for having had Vice President Al Gore as a student. It is a school of the elite, the establishment of the city. Johnny, I think you're exactly right. Not only is Jeff Zients from Washington, D.C., but he really is of Washington, D.C. And so growing up in a close-in suburb, born in the Washington, D.C. area, and over the course of his career, I believe spent no more than four years total outside of Washington, D.C. So Jeff Zients, almost from beginning to end, is the product of Washington, D.C., and a community of Washington, D.C. that deeply entrenches him in the establishment in a way that's even beyond simply being from the area. Yes. I think what's so interesting to us is his family background as it reflects on his career, which is to say, in almost all of the profiles of Jeff Zines, you see this line, Jeff Zines, comma, whose father, Alan, was a psychoanalyst. And were I to put a comma at the end, that clause conjures an image of a erudite, tweedy individual listening as a patient is reclining on a divan. And that is undoubtedly true. But what's interesting to us, based on our research for this political risk brief, which we encourage you to read on our website, is that Alan Zients was a high-ranking executive at a very successful outsourced behavioral health management company called Health Management Strategies International. It was known at the time by the acronym HMS, and it was a subsidiary of Blue Cross Blue Shield of the National Capital Area, which is now known as Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield. In the early 1990s, Alan Zients testified before Congress repeatedly on that company's management of behavioral health, meaning mental health benefits for the program now known as TRICARE, the insurer basically for active duty military personnel and military retirees. At the time, TRICARE was known as CHAMPUS, C-H-A-M-P-U-S. And Health Management Strategies International, as I mentioned, was the outsourced manager of the behavioral health, mental health benefits that Champus recipients received. So already you see in Jeff Zients's father this horizon of medicine beyond the practice of medicine, which is to say medicine in the realm of business and financial engineering and government. And it's really interesting if you trace the genealogy of Health Management Strategies International, that the company was sold to a firm in Connecticut called Value Health. And then Value Health itself was sold to HCA Columbia, Hospital Corporation of America Columbia, which is famous politically for two reasons. First, HCA was founded by the Frist family. It's the source of the wealth of former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. And it was run at the time at which it acquired Value Health by now U.S. Senator Rick Scott of Florida. After acquiring Value Health, HCA Columbia sold what had been Health Management Strategies International to another firm based in the Tidewater area of Virginia, run by a name that some of our listeners will recognize. It's a name that many have not heard in about 22 or 23 years, Ronald Dozeritz, who was a major contributor to President Clinton 
and was a subject of interest around the time of President Clinton's pardons as he exited office. And within the last period of time, that entity called Value Options, it had already merged once, was sold to Anthem, which is now Elevance. So you kind of see in the genealogy of Jeff Zients' father's employer, the relationship between policymakers in Washington and the business of healthcare in the country. And that to us is a very interesting insight based on Jeff Zients' biography that few have identified before. And that background, Johnny, which you very expertly reviewed, really shows this almost seamless connection between the public and private sectors. And rather than springing forth ex nihilo, Jeff Zients was very grounded, clearly, in the experience of his father in an early iteration of this seamless integration between the public and private. And Zients would go on to not only master that, but to take it to even higher levels and even greater success. And that background seems to have been elided from his biography. There's no doubt about it that he's been massively successful in his own right. He's been a very talented entrepreneur and business executive. But the average profile of Jeff Sines makes it seem as though he got to where he is purely on the basis of technocratic merit. That might be true on a very literal level, but it's clear that there was already this horizon, this ambition related to the intersection of healthcare and government and the public interest in his home growing up. Zients graduates from St. Albans. He is accepted and enters Duke, graduates from Duke in 1988, has some early experiences in finance, and ultimately, in 1992, he joins the advisory board, which was founded by the legendary David Bradley, a native Washingtonian, I believe, and the graduate himself of Sidwell Friends, which is an elite private school akin to St. Albans, for those not from the Washington area. It was a Quaker affiliation historically rather than an Episcopal affiliation. But in the same league of private schools, I would say, as St. Albans. If I'm insulting someone by saying that, I apologize. Uh, But again, I think that's a rough approximation. But again, it's important to emphasize David Bradley himself, a native Washingtonian, a graduate of an elite private school, and David Bradley launches the advisory board where Zients becomes integral to the success of the advisory board and some of its related entities. And if anyone doubts the importance of Jeff Zients to David Bradley and the advisory board, you just can rely on David Bradley himself to describe Jeff Zients' centrality to his success. In a 2011 Washington Post interview, David Bradley described Jeff Zients in the following way. I've had 6,000 colleagues, and he is the most impressive aggregation of talent I've ever worked with, Bradley said in a recent interview. So one out of 6,000, that's not too shabby. So again, a very impressive talent, clearly, was central to the success of the advisory board. Johnny, give our listeners some sense of, for those who don't know, what is the advisory board? How is it successful? Why is it important understanding Jeff Science and contemporary Washington? The advisory board has been a legendary business in the professional services domain in the Washington, D.C. area. It was very successful positioning itself 
as identifying and disseminating best practices in healthcare, as institutions in Washington, such as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, became more and more important to the provisioning of healthcare across the country. And I think it also was important as a training ground for many individuals who are now further along in their careers in healthcare policy. It hired a lot of people, it trained them, provided them with skills, and then launched them into other enterprises and roles within the universe of healthcare and government health policy. Ultimately, the advisory board was bought out, if I'm not mistaken, by Optum, which is the services subsidiary or the services business of United Health Group, the big insurer and healthcare company based in Minnesota. So the genealogy of the business itself reflects the genealogy I described a few moments ago about Health Management Strategies International, where a locally incubated company at the intersection of business and healthcare policy eventually was acquired by a much larger company with its roots in insurance and the practice of medicine. And so there's this dual component to the success of the advisory board where it was influential in setting the agenda around healthcare, and it was also financially successful in and of itself. And successful in that gray, seamless zone where it's difficult to tell where the private sector stops and the public sector starts. And again, that's very reminiscent, of course, of Jeffrey Zients' father and his own success, again, taken to a different level. But again, you can see the patterns. And Zeins was, by Bradley's own estimation, instrumental to the IPO, not only of the advisory board, but of the spinoff company, Corporate Executive Board. Again, Zeins led both IPOs and to have a sense of success of those endeavors. According to the last personal financial disclosure report that was filed by Jeffrey Zeins with the U.S. Office of Government Ethics, he listed about a dozen individual accounts as being worth between 5 and $25 million. And so you begin to do some rough math along with his other holdings. This is not just a modicum of success. This, by Washington standards or really by any standards, is enormous success. Yes, and the corporate executive board itself was acquired by the market research company Gartner. So you see in the trajectory of these businesses The very thing that the hipster antitrust movement that we've talked about on this podcast before decries, which is to say the relentless pace of M&A activity over the last 25 years. Their claim would be that the neoliberals in and around the Clinton administration advantaged themselves ultimately by encouraging a laissez-faire attitude with respect to M&A. And you can see why they and other progressives have criticized Jeff Zients from the left because, in part, his business career represents the very thing that they have been agitating against. And we're going to get back to that left-of-center coolness, if not opposition to Zients, in a little bit. But post-advisory board, Zients emerges as this Mr. Fix-It, a description that is commonly applied to him. Often, again, it's separated from this background, right? He became a Mr. Fix-It in the context of government. But then he really transitions from the private sector fully to the public sector in this very powerful, esteemed technocratic role. Before joining the Obama administration, so between the advisory board success and his direct government service, 
Zients was deeply involved in venture capital, private equity, a whole range of investments, considerable success in those things, unsurprisingly. And then, as I mentioned, he, starting in 2009, becomes a really important figure in the Obama administration upon President Obama taking office in January of 2009. The way Zients describes his background prior to joining the Obama administration, he really emphasizes his time working with David Bradley at the advisory board. In a December 2014 interview, Jeff Science described his private sector background in the following way. I got a very lucky break and joined a fellow named David Bradley, uh, who had started a company about a decade earlier. He had done the heavy entrepreneurial lifting of figuring out a business formula. So by the time I arrived, the business formula was in place. We were about 100 people. It was a company called the Advisory Board. Across the next 15 years, we actually turned that into two companies. One's called the Advisory Board, one's called the Corporate Executive Board. I was lucky enough to be the chairman of both companies when they went public. Uh, I had never stepped foot in the federal government before. Uh, I uh, walked into uh, the Office of Management Budget as the Deputy for Management and the Chief Performance Officer, so bringing some of my private sector experience to federal government to help uh, federal government uh, catch up on technology and productivity, and uh, have have had a very lucky and interesting and fortunate run. I think it's important to remember that in that period, Bradley was, in his own way, the man of the moment in those early Obama years. His flagship asset at that time was the Atlantic magazine, which he had led into incredible growth as an online property, having purchased it many years before from Mort Zuckerman, if I recall the history correctly. And if you think back, the editorial staff of The Atlantic, the writers, the bloggers for The Atlantic at that time, like Jeffrey Goldberg, had tremendous access to President Obama, The Atlantic's sophisticated contrarian take on a lot of issues, cohered with the vibe that many Obama administration officials wanted to project. And I think it was really important for Jeff Zients as a political actor to have had this affiliation with David Bradley. So that brings us to the Obama administration, as I mentioned a moment ago. And this is where Zients really emerges as a master of the administrative state, of bureaucracy, of that intersection of the public and private sectors. In 2009, President Barack Obama appointed Zients as the first ever U.S. Chief Performance Officer at OMB, which stands for the Office of Management and Budget. Zients was described as a manager, an organizer, someone who was not particularly ideological, but who got things done. He was apparently named Mr. Fix-It. One of Zients's shining moments was in helping fix healthcare.gov. By the way, it's a very Washington thing for an administration to get credit for cleaning up the disaster that it created. <laughs> so, and if healthcare.gov is known, I think, within Washington as this tremendous success story due in large part to Zients. But nonetheless, it was a success story that resulted from a disaster. So, again, it's a very Washington thing to fail up by fixing the thing that was broken to begin with. That wasn't Zients' fault that it was broken to begin with. But again, people look back and healthcare.gov is not known today as a disaster. It's seen very positively. 
Nobody says, wow, I'm going to give Geico or Progressive or Liberty Mutual or my auto insurer credit for having a user interface that works, that leads me in the right direction. When I say I want this much collision coverage, it actually produces a policy for me that gives me this much collision coverage. Nobody makes a claim like that, Jonathan, about a private sector actor that's trying to steer a customer to a particular policy. But in the case of healthcare.gov, the individuals involved in fixing it have made careers for the last 10 years. They've made fortunes, in some cases, out of that mythology. So in the Obama administration, Jeff Zients is Mr. Fix-It. His identity really was as the private sector guy. If you look at how he described himself in 2013. As the chairman said, before I joined OMB three years ago, and I have now been at OMB three years and been involved in, in the budget, so feel like I'm in a good position today to talk about uh, the president's budget. But before that, I'd spent more than 20 years in the private sector. I had not been in government at all before. Fast forward, a few years later, President Biden announced designs as his chief of staff. If you look at how Biden described Zients, you can see essentially a continuation of this Obama administration private sector Mr. Fix-It persona. Jeremy, I think it's important to note for our listeners that by this point, Zients is a legend. He had spent time at OMB. As you noted, he spent time at the National Economic Council, and he has emerged as this incredibly adept manager, this navigator of the bureaucracy, the political system, Washington itself. And so he's a major figure within Washington, D.C. by the time that President Biden takes office. And two other aspects, I think, that are important. After the Obama administration ends, he does two big things in his business career. He assumes a position as a director of Facebook and Rather than taking a position in, say, corporate government affairs, as some of his colleagues in the Obama administration did, he goes to work for an investment fund that brands itself, messages about itself that it is patiently investing long-term capital akin to what Warren Buffett does at Berkshire Hathaway. Not trading in and out in the moment, but trying to be a durable partner for businesses, for entrepreneurs. And I think both of these things, the participation in the Facebook board as the tech giants were beginning to come under scrutiny, as well as his leadership of Cranemere, positions him as somewhat transcendent of the grubbiness of political life and the political system. He enhances his credibility as a figure who's sort of astride or beyond the mundane in D.C. political life. And Johnny, exactly what you described can be sensed in President Biden's description of Zeitz when Biden announced Zeitz as chief of staff succeeding Ron Klain. I knew it was important to fill Ron's shoes with someone who understands, who understands what it takes to lead a team and who is focused on getting important things done. That's Jeff Zients right here. And Jeff, I've seen Jeff tackle some of the toughest issues in our government. When I was vice president, I first got to know him. We worked together and implement the Recovery Act of 2009. And later, he was director of the Office of Management and Budget. 
He later led the daunting, complicated task of fixing healthcare.gov <laughs> to get millions of Americans signed up for quality, affordable health care under the Affordable Care Act. Just as Johnny described a moment ago, this very background and success that was so instrumental to Zients put him inevitably in tension with the progressive left. When Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez described the arrival of Zients as chief of staff, her comments suggested a certain discomfort. There's a kind of frosty aspect to her comments. I do think it has shifted pretty significantly. I don't think it's a similar dynamic. I do agree that the dynamic um, with Ron Klain was very open. I think right now, for me personally, it's hard to tell sometimes um, what is getting through and what isn't getting through. And that, I think, is a dynamic shift that is noted for me personally. Perhaps other members have different experiences. Um, I also think, you know, from what I've been hearing with some grassroots partners, that they don't feel the same receptiveness or true partnership, I'll mm. say, that they had experienced previously. I think that it is a note of concern, especially around issues that are very important, but also can be difficult to navigate, like immigration or environmental provisions. It's been tricky. I wouldn't call that frosty. I would call that cryogenic. <laughs> you can you can feel the— Ted Williams <laughs> level. You can, you can feel the icicles just dripping off of the words. But understandably— from an AOC perspective, Zients is much more part of the problem than the solution. So as we said at the outset, this is not the story of a man as much as it's the story of a moment in Washington, how that man embodies that moment and a community and a sociology and an economy that is distinct and critical. And so this whole review of the background and the success of Jeff Zients gives us a deep insight into modern Washington, D.C. and the success of Washington, D.C. built on this integration of the public and the private sector, which, of course, concerns healthcare quite a bit, but also extends to defense and other sectors. And so Jeff Zients is the embodiment of that success, is the embodiment of that hybridization of the public and private sectors in a way specific to Washington where one is necessary to the other, and not only is it necessary, but it drives the success of the other. And so these two codependent elements have really fueled the prosperity of Washington, D.C. and the growth of Washington, D.C., and have given it a power and an importance that was not the case, even when Jeff Zients' father, Alan, was so successful. That success foreshadowed the current moment, but this is an entirely different degree. Yeah, the rise of a Jeff Zients is correlated to the development of luxury shopping at city center. Washington could only have these amenities, these resources, with the emergence of a whole class of companies like the advisory board and innumerable other healthcare consultants, healthcare contractors, defense contractors, IT contractors, firms operating at the intersection of business and government. And there's a reason why townhomes in Georgetown that in the 90s would have sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars today sell for 5 to $10 million. And that increase is way beyond the national trend and way beyond, I think, what would have been expected in Washington historically. In some zip codes in the District of Columbia, 
the value of homes, and again, this is in part due to gentrification and the embrace of the urban over the last 30 years after the suburbanization of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, certain homes are worth 10 times what they were worth circa 1999, 2000 at the turn of the century. That's astounding. I mean, that might be surpassed by certain zip codes in South Florida on the sand since the emergence of the COVID pandemic, but there are not that many places, I think, in the United States where real estate value has gone up tenfold in 20 years. And if our audience detects the bitterness of a recent home buyer, they, <laughs> that would be an accurate assessment. But Johnny, you're exactly correct. And I want to point out that you hear a lot of people, especially on the right, attack and talk about the administrative state. And you hear a lot of people on the left and on the right, to some degree, of course, attacking big corporations. But it's very rare that you hear people talk about and attack this fusion that's specific to Washington and enriching of Washington. And I think part of the reason and part of Jeff Zion's success, despite his ties to the administrative state and to large corporations, is that the proximity of that success, of his success and the system's success to democratic institutions sort of shields this integration of the public and private to the enrichment of both from criticism, from excessive visibility that might draw that criticism. And so in many ways, the structures that Zeintz mastered and benefited him really largely escape scrutiny. It's unusual that somebody will focus on this aspect of Washington's political economy, this aspect of Washington power. And that in itself, I think, is very remarkable. An observation you made on a previous podcast, Jonathan, is that there is no procurement section in the Wall Street Journal. If you look at the business press, there's very little inquiry regarding companies in the Washington, D.C. area that are not the biggest defense contractors, which have all consolidated in this area, or a few standout large companies that happen to be based here for historical reasons, such as Marriott. There is no constituency in the press that's closely following healthcare services companies that are really important to, for example, the administration of Medicaid across the country that are based in this area. I think one possible reason is if you look at the geographic distribution of elites and wealth in the D.C. area, especially in lower Montgomery County and upper Northwest, where Zions spend a lot of time, you have housing prices that have gone way up, but actually there's very little commercial development. So if you look at the stretch between Kensington, where Zions grew up in St. Albans, where he went to school, the Connecticut Avenue corridor, Chevy Chase Lake is now developing, but there's essentially been almost zero new commercial development in that whole stretch of southern Montgomery County, upper Northwest. So there's wealth, but people don't want that wealth to be visible. It's okay for it to be in places like Northern Virginia, Tyson's Corner. So there is this aspect of the D.C. elite that has become wealthy, but doesn't explicitly talk about the large companies. And Jeremy, you're getting to what I think is a brilliant point. There is, I think, right below the surface, there's this guilt, or at least this insecurity about the prosperity. And at a minimum, I think that many people suspect that there's a political vulnerability, that if this enrichment of the Washington, D.C. area through this hybridization of the public and private sectors ever became an electoral issue, 
it might prove extremely compelling. And I think the question that has to be asked going forward is amidst declining life expectancy and stagnant economic growth, is the upward trajectory of the Washington, D.C. area premised not on innovation and private sector business development, but on this integration of the administrative state and business interests for the benefit of both? Is that viable as the nation senses this stagnation? And I think, again, my guess is that some politician could be on the right, could be on the left, more likely the right, but it's not inconceivable to be on the left, is going to figure out this issue. And it may prove to be one of those sleeper themes that really could rock American politics. Two points. The first is, if you want to see the wealth of the Washington, D.C. area, look at photographs of downtown Bethesda in the year 1990 versus 1995, or whatever interval you choose. The affluence of this area is embodied by the streetscape there. The other point I would make, Jonathan, in reply to what you said is that there was a moment after the financial crisis in the community we described where people thought the venue for that backlash was going to be Fannie Mae and the Democratic Party elites who worked in the Carter administration, worked in the Clinton administration, and basically had management of Fannie Mae leading into the financial crisis. And for whatever reason, despite some early energy, there really was not great scrutiny of that community of people. Many of them have gone on to do even bigger things in the Washington, D.C. area. One of Jeff Zients's good friends, based on a lot of the profiles that have been written about Zines recently, is Tom Nides, the current U.S. ambassador to Israel, who was a Fannie Mae executive in the 90s, early 2000s, worked at a number of investment banks subsequently. That was the trajectory of many people in this community that hipster antitrust, as an example, would call neoliberal. And so the question is, will there be a backlash this time? If there was not a backlash after the financial crisis, will there be a backlash? And it remains to be seen. Thank you, Johnny and Jeremy, for a great discussion, an important theme. As you mentioned earlier, Johnny, I want to encourage all our listeners to go to the website, barronpa.com, the library section. You can read the written form of the brief. We welcome your feedback. Please rate this podcast. Give us as many stars as you think merited. We appreciate you joining us, and we look forward to having you listen to a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. Mm-hmm.